Um, and then if you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open up to the book of James. We're in James chapter 3, verse 9. We're not going to be there right at the beginning, but we'll get there eventually. So James chapter 3, verse 9 is where we're going to be going. And uh, to open up this morning, I want to make a confession to you. And that confession is this. I am an unbeliever. I am an unbeliever. Right, so uh, Jesus is king. He's king of everything. He has come to earth. He has purchased me with his blood. He pursued me when I was running from him. He died for my sins. He was raised from death and conquered it. He showed his power over the most frightening things that could ever stand against me. He has privileged me to be called a son of God. He has given me his spirit. He has authority over everything. He is perfect and he loved a wretched sinner who deserved none of it. And I am here to tell you this morning that I don't believe it. Now, you're like, oh no. Like, this is a weird time where the pastor comes up and confesses things to us as a church and uh, decides that he's leaving ministry and that he's abandoning the faith and all of this. This is not one of those moments, I want you to know. Because I'm also here to tell you that you don't believe it. So not only do I not believe it, but you yourselves don't believe it. Uh, This was the provocative opening that uh, I interacted with in the book Gospel Fluency by the author Jeff Vanderstelt. In his book Gospel Fluency, he presents the idea that he himself is an unbeliever. Now, he's a pastor. He's planted churches. He's incredibly influential, and he talks about the gospel and the goodness of Jesus all the time, but his confession at the opening of this book is, I am an unbeliever, and so are you, right? That, That there is this tendency inside of us to not believe. Now his point is to not say, like he's not saying that he doesn't agree that these things are true. Like he says, I I agree with them, you know, plenty. All of the things that I listed earlier, those are things that I absolutely agree with. But his point is to say that aspects of his life, sin, disobedience, struggle, brokenness, all of these are the results of unbelief. All of these are the results of unbelief. His point is to say that he's actually missing out on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. He misses out on them because unbelief exists in parts of his life. Right, so, so I want to pose a question to you to kind of reframe our thinking this morning. Like, what if you have... Uh, kind of been seeking, you're, you're seeking to overcome sin struggles and patterns that have been present for years, maybe for decades. Maybe uh, this morning, what if you're seeking to become everything that God desires you to be? I think that's one thing that we are all longing for. Like, we want to become more of what God longs for us to be. What if this morning you want to see yourself clearly, more clearly reflect Jesus to the people around you? Like, what if you want to become more compassionate to the poor and needy? What if you uh, want to become more willingly and excitedly sharing the gospel with your neighbors? What if you uh, want to become those who would give all of your time and your talent and treasure to God's priorities instead of your own? And if, if that's you, what if you want to do any of those things? I want to ask you then a question to help reframe your thinking. What if these things are not primarily a question of your effort or your ability 
or your actions, but what if these things are a question of your belief? What you believe. So uh, this morning, we are in this series called Rhythms. We've been working through this series together, and we've defined rhythms as this. Rhythms are the consistent patterns at work in our use of time. And as we've gone, uh, spent the last several weeks working through this, what we've discovered is that our rhythms actually determine the quality of our character. So the kind of people that we become is uh, kind of influenced by the way that we use our time. The patterns that exist in our time work over time to develop the kind of people that we become. So we talked about patterns, like patterns of expectation at the very beginning. So knowing that God is waiting to work in every moment and then trying to have an awareness of him working in every moment to to meet us in our everyday activities. Uh, We talked about patterns of confession and repentance kind of initiated by this pattern of baptism in our life. We talked about patterns of relationships with one another. Last week, Pastor Don talked to us about the pattern of having interaction with God through his word. And today we're going to talk about the pattern of believing. So now I want you to imagine that I am a friend of yours and you have just shared your faith with me. And so then after you share your faith with me, I have a question for you. And that question is this, why would I believe after you've had this kind of uh, time of pouring your heart out and kind of clarifying what your faith is for me, I ask you a question, why would I believe? And you tell me it's the only way you can be what? Oh, y'all are good. That's the Christian answer right there, I tell you. That's like, that hits the nail on the head. Why would I believe? My friend... It's because it's the only way you can be saved. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So if you have been in Bible-heavy churches for any amount of time, Uh, When we ask a question about, and this is just kind of a unique reality of uh, Bible, like churches that are heavy on Bible, we ask this unique question. When we're asking about people's religious status, we ask this very important question, are they saved? Are they saved? Right, What what are we really asking when we ask that question? We're asking, is there a point in time when they confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead? But, like, let's kind of reframe it, uh, because another question that we're asking, did they get out of hell? That's another question that we're asking when we ask, are they saved? Do they have eternal life? That's another question that we're asking when we ask, are they saved? And you know what? It's really good to focus on a particular point in time that happened back when that a person might have had this interaction where they experienced God and then uh, decided to confess that he is his Lord and believed in their heart that God raised him, that raised Jesus from the dead. But all of that places our focus. So if the primary question that we ask about a person's religious status is, are they saved? All of that places our focus about what the Christian life is on an event that happened in the past. Are they saved? Did it happen? 
right? And the problem with that is that that can create confusion about the nature of salvation and belief in the Christian life, right? Because as you read the New Testament, there is certainly like a past aspect to salvation. You were saved. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Right? But you know what? There's also a future aspect to your salvation. Like the word salvation, if you read the apostle Peter, his use of the word salvation actually occurs very frequently in the future tense. So when Peter talks about salvation, he's talking about something that is going to come when Jesus returns, right? Something that's off in the future. And then the Apostle Paul, it's also interesting that um, he, in other places, focuses on salvation that is a present and ongoing reality. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel, right? Like if there is a place in all of the Bible where you are looking for a person empowered by God to tell you what the gospel is, 1 Corinthians 15 is the place. Here it is. And what does he say about these things? It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Okay, those are both past actions in which you stand. So that's a presently happening thing. You are currently standing in it and by which you are being saved. Not by which you were saved, but by which you now, living your life, walking through life, are in the process of being saved. If you hold fast, that's again a present verb, something you're doing right now to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So it's interesting to me that when we kind of choose this past option, and that's kind of the focus of how we talk about our religious status, that, that the Apostle Paul is actually kind of using this present and ongoing reality. It's kind of like, like as an alternative, we could actually ask a more challenging question than the one we currently ask. So instead of asking, are they saved? We could ask, are they being saved? Right? And it's kind of like, it's a question along the same lines. Are they holding fast? Are they standing in the gospel? Right? Like if I'm really concerned about your spiritual development and where you're going with the Lord, yeah, I want to know that you are saved, but I want to know that you're being saved. I want to know that you're actively standing in the gospel right now. I want to know that you are experiencing this present and ongoing reality of God's salvation through the good news of Jesus. So think even... In, in terms of your own self-evaluation. How does this impact the way that you think about yourself and your own relationship with the Lord? Like, what if instead of kind of trying to constantly remember, was I saved? Like, what if you started asking the question to yourself, am I being saved? Am I standing in the gospel? Am I right now, moment to moment, believing the Lord? Like, what if, like, what if the Christian life does, yes, absolutely start with an initial belief in the gospel, but then, like, from that point, it's just an implementation of belief into every other aspect of our lives. Like, yeah, so, so what if we kind of just took the idea of belief and worked it through into every aspect of our lives? And that question is actually going to take us to James chapter 3. The book of James 
is entirely, like if you read the book and try to get uh, an understanding of its all-encompassing reality, the book of James is entirely about faith. And in these words, faith, belief, these, uh, they're very closely intertwined. They come from the same basic word. The book of James is entirely about faith, about what you believe. And it has some challenging questions for people who claim belief. It has some challenging words for them. So James in chapter 2, uh, and we're not looking at James chapter 2 specifically, but I want you to know what he said back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he said, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead, meaning that if the works of Jesus are not proceeding forth from your life, then your faith is not genuine. So, uh, so then in chapter 3, he begins to illustrate how this works with some really specific examples. He uses the example of the tongue. And he says, you know what? The tongue can do some major damage. The things that you say about other people, the way you use your mouth, when you open it up and speak and talk of other people, you get, it's like a fire that cannot be controlled. It causes all of this damage. And so he uses this as an illustration. So I want you to read about what he says. Like with all of this context in mind. He's talking about faith and how faith without works is dead. And so then he says, let's talk about the tongue and all the damage it can do. So James 3 verses 9 to 10. It says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For the, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And then he said, my brothers... These things ought not be so. Right? You're people of faith. right? So if you believe, these things ought not be so. Now, like I just want to stop here. Has anyone ever been confronted before? Raise your hand if you've been confronted by somebody else about some kind of issue. Yeah, okay, we've been, we've been confronted in this room. I saw you, Perry. I saw you back there raising your hand. That's good. Uh, so, uh, so we have been confronted in this room. People have come and approached us and tried to address. Now, now, when somebody confronts us, we generally think in one of two potential responses. The first response is we say, who are you to say that thing about me? Leave me alone. I'm going to walk the other way, right? That's the first possible response. Another possible response, though, is we're embarrassed, maybe a little bit ashamed of what we've done. And so we say, "What? you, you know what? You're right. And I'm going to try to do better. You're right, and I'm going to try to do better. Right? So, so the response then is, we tend to think then that the right response, when somebody confronts us about the thing and the thing that they're saying is true, we tend to think that the right response is some kind of embarrassment or shame, right? And then uh, modify our behavior. Right? Because he says, you know, whoever the person is who addresses us, they say, like, you shouldn't behave that way. And that's what James is doing, right? He's coming, and he's saying, you shouldn't behave that way. These things ought not be so. But I want to kind of challenge our kind of typical thinking about the right response. Because we think, okay, so if we respond with embarrassment and shame and then agree that we're going to change, that it should get better. Like the, the idea that we come up with is we hear, okay, you're bad, so try harder and do better and you won't be bad anymore, right? Like that's the way we think. That's the way we operate. So another way you could say this is first you need to get saved, 
And then you need to presently clean up your life, right? So you do one thing, but then you kind of move on to a second thing. But that's actually not it. And that's not what James says, is, says at all. In fact, that's not even the core of the problem for James. The, the core of the problem is not your actions. When James says, like, these things ought not be so, these things are not the core of the problem. The core of the problem is something else. And he uses an illustration to describe the core of the problem. James 3.11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Now this is a question that everybody would obviously know the answer to because you cannot go to a source of fresh water and get salt water from it. Neither can you go to a source of salt water and get fresh water from it, right? These things do not fit together. So James 3.12, he kind of goes further. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So his point is this. The thing produces whatever it is grounded in. The thing produces whatever it is grounded in. What comes out of it is a result of the root. The fruit depends on the root. So the core of what he's saying is, if you tear people down with your words, the problem is not just your words. The problem is that you are a person who wants to tear people down with your words. Right, if you gossip, the problem is not first and foremost your gossip. The problem is underneath the gossip is a heart that wants to seek to disparage people. If you disparage the reputation of another person, the problem is not primarily the fruit, but the source of that disparagement. Right, so remember, this is an art, uh, kind of an illustration of a truth that he has already articulated. And what is that truth? James 2.26 says this. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, so what this means, like for your tongue, in the realm of your tongue, since that's the kind of illustration of this reality that he's using, what this means is that uh, your abusive language your disparaging language, your gossiping language, your slanderous language, your lying language, none of that is going to be solved by trying not to do any of those things. Right? Like you are not going to stop your tongue because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Because the primary problem is not what you are doing, but it is what you are believing. So, uh, to kind of summarize all of this, and the main point this morning is this, what you do is rooted in what you believe, right? Like at the end of the day, the, the whole book of James addresses this, because James goes after a lot of different issues for what it's worth. He kind of attacks a bunch of different things, but the whole thing is rooted in this concept, what you do is actually rooted in what you believe. This is why Nearly every letter that the Apostle Paul wrote has two parts, right? The first part is talking about the amazing things that Jesus has accomplished for us, 
Right? That, like, that is the first part of the letter. And then like, there's like two or three lines about because of these realities, we should then live this way. And then the last half of the book is entirely about the way that we should live as a result of the amazing things that Jesus has accomplished for us. So if you find yourself struggling with any of the particular things he mentions on this side of the book, Actually, he's saying the answer to these things is actually believing the first set of things even more. Which is why he puts so much energy into that. So, so um, he says, you know what? What's your problem? Sexual immorality? If that's your problem, you know what? Here is the gospel and all of its implications for you. Believe these things and let what you believe about these things inform how you live. Right, what's your problem? Do you have like disunity among your brothers and sisters? You know what? Here's the gospel and all of its implications. Believe these things and let what you believe about those things determine how you live. And so, so the beginning of those sections, and at the beginning of each of those sections about what you do... He says it's not first and foremost about your doing. This is what he says. So like uh, Colossians chapter 3, we have an example of this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He has spent all of his energy talking about what Jesus has done, who he is, what he has accomplished. And then in verse 1 of Colossians chapter 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The question is, not, like, you know what he does after this point? He says, therefore do. Therefore execute. Therefore carry out. But he starts with, where are your minds set? What are you believing? And what are the things that he's talked about up to this point in Colossians? He's saying, you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. It's talked about how Jesus kind of stood at the beginning of creation and he was the one who created everything and he has authority over everything and he is in and through everything. It talks about how Jesus' death has brought you to life talks about how you were alienated from God, but now what Jesus has done is that he has brought you near to God through his body on the cross. Right? So, and then he says, set your minds on things that are above. All of the things that I've just talked about, these things are the things that are above. Set your minds on them and let that inform what you do, the way that you live. Romans 12 too does the same thing. We've read this almost every time in this, uh, this rhythms series at the end for the benediction. We said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What renews your mind? Everything that he has said up to this point. Humanity, we're objects of God's wrath because we had chosen to worship created things. All of us have fallen short of God's design and all of us can be made right through faith in Jesus Christ. Because he died in our place for our sins and he is welcoming us to God. And now we're a part of God's family because of what he's accomplished for our sake. And now we have an amazing inheritance because of what he accomplished for our sake. And the love of God is constantly pursuing us because of what he accomplished. And God works everything together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose because of what he accomplished. So he says in verse 12, 1 and 2, 
present your bodies a living sacrifice. Surrender everything and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let these truths about what Jesus has done change your mind, change who you are, change what you think, change what you believe. And then he says, live it out. (laughs) Do. Because of this, so do. So what this means is that belief and salvation are not things that happened back then. But they are things that are actively happening in the Christian life now. Like, the Christian life is not you were saved by grace, so start white-knuckling it. The Christian life is you were saved by grace through faith, so live by grace through faith. We are saved, and we are being saved by our faith. Okay, so I've made the case for we didn't just believe, but we are called to be believing, right? So let's talk about some rhythms of believing and how that might be lived out in our lives. So... uh, We kind of have some implementation to do. There are things that we are going to do, but all of the things that we do are oriented towards helping us better believe the things about the gospel. So you see, I have a tree up here. Now this is just an example. The first thing that we are going to do in our rhythm of believing, these are the rhythm of believing, the first spiritual practice that we're going to implement here that we are going to name the fruit and identify the root. Name the fruit and identify the root. So let's just, uh, let's work with an example. So I'm going to kind of walk through this with you. This is a tool that I actually like want you to take and kind of carry with you as we walk from this place. But uh, we're going to start with an example. I want uh, a particular uh, potential option could be that you are a person who maybe is, I don't know, like quick to anger. Right, so, so this is like just a consistent struggle throughout your life, something that you keep coming back to, something that consistently has a hold on you. So uh, one of the obvious fruit of that is that you are quick to anger, right? So this is coming out of the branches. That's one thing. But there are other potential fruits that are resulting from that, right? Because... If you've ever experienced anger or the tendency to be quick to anger, uh, that doesn't always work itself out externally, but actually like a lot of things happen internally before anything ever comes out, right? So we have kind of this internal seething that might be a fruit that we work with. Uh, What are some other uh, fruits that work out? Uh, How about passive aggression? Right, so this is, um, I'm mad, and I, I want to do something about it, but I don't want to kind of directly address the thing that I'm mad about, so instead, I'm going to slam the car door, or I'm going to uh, uh, kind of violently move things in the drawers, or uh, kind of when I set something down on the table, hit it down a little harder than I normally do, so that I force the person who hears it to ask me, is everything Okay. Right? So that's passive aggression. Or there's just like outright aggression, which some others might opt for, where I, I, I kind of just name uh, 
exactly how it is that you have offended me, and I tell you very directly to your face what kind of person I think you are and how I think you need to do better. Um, Another fruit is a lack of listening. Actually, uh, what is in the book of James, the opposite of be quick to anger is be quick to hear, right? That's kind of the two things that are contrasted. So a lack of listening, that could be a fruit, Um, some other options on the table. Uh, Gossiping or complaining, these are are fruits of uh, being quick to anger. Uh, complaining. All right, and you could probably come up with a series of others, especially if you've had any history of being quick to anger. You know, kind of know how this works itself out in your life, right? These are the fruits. So we have to ask a question. So the first question we're asking is, what is happening? What are the things that are actually happening? What are the things that we're doing? That is the fruit. Then we're going to kind of go a, a layer beneath that. The next question that we're going to ask is, what are you believing about yourself? We'll, do, we'll talk about yourself first. So what are you believing? What is at the core of your belief about yourself? So uh, some potential options. Um, if I am uh, internally seething, uh, and I'm being pretty aggressive, uh, and I'm complaining a lot, uh, one thing that I might possibly believe is that I deserve to judge. Okay, that's one option on the table for something you might believe about yourself or I might believe about myself. Uh, The second thing you might believe, for what it's worth, people who are quick to anger have kind of sometimes underlying beliefs about control and who should be in control. And so you might believe, in fact, if you're quick to anger, that I should be in control. Um, Another thing you might believe about yourself, and kind of this is sometimes at the core too, uh, what do you believe about your rights? Right? Because you might believe that your rights are most important. So that's another core, kind of at the root belief. My rights, most important. So I am not saying that every time these things show up, that each of these things are at the root. What I am saying is that this takes some self-evaluation and self-examination of you actually going, okay, what belief is that fruit coming out of? Where is that coming from? So, So those are things you might believe about yourself. But then I also have like another set of questions is what are you believing about God? Right, so um, if you think you should be in control and you are feeling frustrated because things are out of control, uh, something that you might be wrongly believing is that God is not in control. Um, and then finally, as all of these things work themselves out in our lives, we tend to place ourselves in, in the place of God and then think and operate as if God would do the things that we are doing. Right? So you might even believe 
God would treat them like I am. Okay. Then there's a final question that you have to deal with. What does the gospel say to your false beliefs? What does the gospel say to your false beliefs? So let's start with the first one over here. I deserve to judge. What the gospel says about that? It says, I deserve to be judged. That time and time again, I show myself to fall short of God's standard, to fall short of what I actually should be doing. And that if I got what I deserved, I would not be standing anywhere, particularly in the place of judgment. How about, um, I should be in control. What does the gospel say to that? It says that I am not God. And that as a result, things will actually happen that are outside of my control. And that I would have control of anything in the first place is only a miracle that God would actually like extend that to me. Like things being out of my control is actually now an opportunity for me to trust God who is in control of everything. Okay? Uh, what about my rights are most important? What does the gospel say to that? Uh, well, I am reminded by the gospel that when Jesus' rights were being infringed upon by us, he did not burst out at us, but he pursued us. When we opposed Jesus, in fact, what he did is he gave up his rights so that he might go to a cross for our sakes and die to give us life. Um, how about God is not in control? What, is that God, or what does the gospel say to that? The gospel says that God is so in control that he orchestrated all of the events of history throughout time and space and everything to work up to the point where Jesus would come to earth at the perfect time and the word about Jesus would spread like wildfire because of the particular philosophical context and the particular kind of physical context that Jesus came into so that the whole world would know about who Jesus is and the story that God has written onto creation creation, right? So when we tend to think that God is not in control, like he's so in control of history that like you know 2,000 years ago that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So, and when Jesus rose from the dead, that death did not even have control over him, right? So finally, uh, God would treat them uh, like, sorry, God would treat them like I am treating them. So uh, this is, this is the kind of the fun one and the linchpin. Um, I have done far worse towards God than they have ever done towards me. I have treated God far worse than they have ever treated me. What do they do to you? They cut you off in traffic? 
right? Because that's all it takes for me to start feeling like I need to scream some obscenities at them. Imagine if God treated us like that for our lightest infringement. Instead, he extends to us welcome and forgiveness and new life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. But the Christian life is the practice, like the practice of believing, finding our false beliefs and challenging them with the gospel and kind of convincing ourselves, the more that we challenge them, to believe these things to be true. To believe the gospel in every circumstance, to see the gospel in every aspect of life, to let the good news of what Jesus has done actually renew your mind and your relationship to everything. So that's the first spiritual practice. I want to kind of just challenge you to evaluate, kind of name the fruit and identify the root in your life and then challenge it with the truth of the gospel. So I'm going to set this down because it's going to get in the way of things. The second practice that we are looking at this morning is for you simply to rehearse the gospel. The second spiritual practice that to, to implement is, is to get in the practice of rehearsing the gospel. So for what it's worth, we do this in worship together. Every Sunday we gather, I t- I've told you this before, I will not come up here one Sunday and not tell you something about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And the reason for that is because I believe that if you believe, it will actually create the change that is required to be made for us to become the people God wants us to be. Right, So we rehearse the gospel weekly in worship together and it comes up time and time again so that our hearts might believe it. But we don't just stop at worship because if that's the only place, it's not going to be enough. So we rehearse it in community together. This is the whole piece about relationships, about being in that rhythm with each other. But we have to be intentional in those rhythms with each other that we actually bring the gospel to bear. That when I hear my friend complaining about their boss and uh, talking about how frustrating their work experience is, I might empathize with them for a moment and try to hear them. But also I might speak up and say, like, let's talk about how you're believing the gospel in relation to what's happening with your boss. Like, let's talk about how this might address your circumstance. And then I submit myself to you to hear the very same things from you when I'm complaining about things and when I'm struggling with things to help reframe my thinking and show how the gospel is connected to every piece of my life. In morning and evening, when you wake up and when you lie down, yes, you thank God for giving you breath. And yes, you thank God that you have this life to operate. You thank God for his kind of provision and control over your life. But then also as believers in Jesus, we have the very special thing to thank God for. That we would not even be able to talk to him openly like this if he did not redeem us through Jesus. That we couldn't have this kind of relationship if Jesus' blood didn't go out on the cross. And because of what Jesus has accomplished, that um, he died and that he has rose again, everything about our identity has changed. And so we rehearse that in mourning. Like, not just, God, thank you for providing. Not uh, just thank you for giving me breath. Those are good things. But, but thank you that I have life through Jesus that I could not have otherwise. And so in the same way at meals, at meals we could rehearse the gospel. That, that we wouldn't just kind of Pray the, the stock prayer, uh, dear God, thank you for this food and bless it to the nourishment of our body in Jesus' name, amen. Right? Uh, and that's kind of, that, that's uh, 
kind of what I grew up with, so maybe, maybe not any of you. But there's kind of this typical, like, okay, like, Lord, uh, put your blessing upon this meal, thank you, and that's it. And, like, we kind of rush through it. Every meal is an opportunity to remember God's provision, not only physically for us, but God's provision for us in Jesus. To let that be all-encompassing in our identity. And then finally, through prayer, we get the opportunity to remember the gospel. because So prayer is a conversation, right? We have this uh, kind of interaction with God, and we know that in our prayer, God is like present with us in that time. But the fact, like not everybody has the privilege of praying as Christians are able to pray. We typically think that they do, that everybody kind of just has open access to God, but actually like Christians have unique open access to God because we are covered in the blood of Jesus. Like we can walk freely into the throne room of God where he is. So through prayer, we get the opportunity to rehearse the gospel again and again and again. In every aspect of life, let us be those who rehearse the gospel. So, so what? Number one, we need transformation, not behavior modification. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 26 says this. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This cleansing is the good news of God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit applies that good news into the deepest core of our hearts. And as the Holy Spirit applies the good news to our hearts, it makes us new. Right? That he came to give himself as a ransom for many. That he came to forgive sins. That he came to extend to us a welcome that we do not deserve. That he came to give us life. So surrender to him. Receive his life, and then from that point, keep believing. Right? And, and so you keep believing so that you don't need to be anxious because even when you are rejected by people, you are accepted by God. You don't need to worry because you know that God is working everything together for your good, even though you can't presently see that and experience that you know it's true because of what he said. You're greatly loved by God, even though your heart often rejects him. He pursued you when you were his enemy. You can be kind to others because he was kind to you. You can be patient with others because he was more than patient with you. So instead of telling yourself, try harder and do better, ask yourself, what are my struggles telling me about what I believe? And what truth does the gospel give me to defeat that lie? And so then when we repeat the gospel to ourselves again and again and again, and the Holy Spirit takes those truths and applies it to our heart, what it actually does is it changes our affection. It changes what we love, right? So we work in certain ways and we act in certain ways because our hearts are prone towards certain, certain things. Jesus says their hearts love the darkness rather than the light. But when the gospel comes in and the Holy Spirit begins applying it to our heart, it changes so that we learn to love the things that God loves. 
he imprints the law of love on our hearts. He changes our motivations. And by our believing, we are changed increasingly into the image of Jesus. So, uh, so what, number two? We must know how the gospel meets us to know how it will meet our neighbors. Right? So we talked about one issue with the, the tree, with the fruit and the, the, the roots, right? Think of the countless issues in your own life. I think of the countless issues in my own life that I need to do that exercise with to understand how in the kind of very unique and nuanced spaces of my brokenness, the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to meet me. Right? And if we can't figure out how the gospel meets us, we're not going to be able to proclaim the gospel in a compelling way to our friends and neighbors. Right? Otherwise, it'll just kind of be a rehearsed, rote sort of thing that we kind of walk through our presentation with them and say, okay, now will you believe? You know what is compelling about belief? That Jesus actually meets us in the spaces of our brokenness and shows us how his good news tells us something good about what he wants to do for us. So we need to know how the gospel meets us in those places. We need to know how the good news of Jesus, like it intimately addresses our spaces of brokenness. And this is why these practices are so important. This is why we've been talking about rhythms for the last uh, five or six weeks is because these rhythms that we engage, they shape the kind of people that we become. They make us into the people God is calling us to be. And that is a people who are loved by God and who are extending his love towards others. So Alliance Bible Church, would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, this morning, I want to thank you for the good news of Jesus. I want to thank you for the gift of faith. That we have the opportunity to, to not just believe one time, but it is that through believing the gospel that we are progressively transformed into the people you are calling us to be. So I pray for the people in this room. I pray for your church. I pray for those who are seeking to follow you. I pray for anybody who's watching online. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would enable us to rightly see the fruit in our lives, and to investigate that fruit and to, to discover what root it is coming from. Lord, and when we see that we believe falsely in some places, that uh, you would enable us, Holy Spirit, to apply the gospel in very specific ways to the, those uh, false beliefs, that we might believe what is true about you, and that through believing, we might become increasingly the people that you desire us to be. Lord, I pray that you would make us people who know your word, who know the amazing story of all the history and what you were working out through history to bring about Jesus. Lord, and that we would see your attention to detail and your awareness of what was happening. We would see your power in that situation and we would uh, appreciate it and wonder at it so much that it would shape our heart. Father, thank you for your goodness and Holy Spirit. We are reliant on you to do the shaping of our hearts that we need you to do. So we pray these things in Jesus' name.